In the spring of 1965, in a small Ohio town named Mansfield, was a young girl named Mary Ellen Denier. Her sister described her as a typical, giggly little girl. The local media headlines described her as murdered, leaving the family of Mary Ellen shook and police scrambling to catch a killer. But fortunately, it didn't take very long. The perpetrator was apprehended. The threat was removed from the street, but in a cruel twist of fate, that wouldn't last very long either. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. It was late in the evening on November 14, 1965. 14-year-old Mary Ellen was assisting her mother with the house laundry when the dryer stopped working. The Denier family's clothes were soaked, and in this late in the day and during the cold months, the only option was for them to visit a laundromat to dry the clothes. And since the laundromat was just around the corner and the girl's grandmother lived right next door, their mother was okay with allowing them to take the laundry to the laundromat themselves. So Mary Ellen and her sister Brenda got in a cab and took the short ride to the laundromat. At some point, the girls run out of change, and since there was another laundromat just around the corner, Mary Ellen tells Brenda to wait there for her, and she would make the walk to get the change. But when Mary didn't come back, Brenda went to her grandmother's house in a worry. Her grandma told her to stay at the house and lock the doors, and she would go looking for Mary, and it didn't take long at all for her to find her. When she turned the corner at the end of the block headed to the other laundromat, her face was illuminated red and blue, and her heart had dropped. Mary Ellen's lifeless body was laying on the grass behind a house. Her head had been caved in, and she had been shot multiple times. Who could have done such a thing to an innocent child? What kind of monster was so cold-blooded? The police were able to identify the weapon from a bullet recovered from Mary Ellen's body. The gun was a 38 caliber revolver. So the police started checking local gun shops and hardware stores, as they often sold guns too, until they found one that matched the weapon they were looking for. Their investigation brought them to the Diamond Hardware Store. They checked records, and found the gun they were looking for, and it had been purchased by one man named Lester Eubanks. He was quickly located, as he was a repeat offender who was out on bond at the time for sexual assault. When he was picked up the next day and questioned, he confessed, in great detail. To the police, this was a slam dunk. Eubanks told police that she was a victim of opportunity. He just saw her, and grabbed her, and when she started to scream and fight back, he took out his gun and shot her twice, leaving her for dead. He then went home and showered and got dressed to head to a club downtown. On his way, he passed by the scene of the crime and found that Mary Ellen was still alive, and more than 20 minutes had passed at this time. So Lester then decided to pick up a brick and crushed Mary Ellen's skull, killing her. Then, 
wiped the dust off his hands, got back in his car, continued his trip to the club. In May of 1966, Eubanks's case went to trial. And in true narcissistic fashion, he had a story to tell. So he testified, confessing and retelling the details of what happened that night. He was convicted almost instantly and sentenced by a jury of his peers to death by electric chair, and he was to await his execution at the Ohio State Penitentiary. Eubanks was allowed to have paint, brushes, and canvas, as he was an artist, and it was not uncommon to have death row inmates doing constructive activities until their appointed date. He even later went on to win a few art shows with his work while on death row. He adjusted to prison life pretty easily and used his silver tongue to win favor from the guards, even earning some of their trust. He had a pretty easy life while in prison, all things considered. And while his trial and conviction were over in a blink, his execution was not so swiftly delivered. Three times his execution was, quote, pushed back. But apparently nobody has any idea why this happened. Three separate times leaving suspicion on the people who were running the show. Was it the police? The warden? The guards? Then in 1972, Eubanks got lucky. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional and it was abolished. His sentence commuted to life in prison without parole. He was moved from isolation on death row into the general pop of the prison, where he very quickly talked his way into an honor program that aimed to reform through trust. What that means is that some prisoners were allowed outside of the prison at times when doing work. They were even trusted with vehicles sometimes. Something Eubanks never should have been allowed to be a part of as a repeat offender, a sexual predator, and now a child murderer. So after working hard to gain as much trust as possible, Eubanks succeeds and is one of five prisoners allowed to go out Christmas shopping for their families as a reward for good behavior. So not only was he allowed to participate in a program that gave him the tools and opportunity to escape, they pushed him to the top of the class. So on December 7th, 1973, just eight years after the death of Mary Ellen, Eubanks was taken on a bus in civilian clothes to a crowded shopping mall nearby. He was given cash and three hours of shopping time to pick gifts for his family. He was allowed to leave the presence of the guards and go at it completely alone. With the time and place established, Eubanks heads off to the busy shopping mall, hoping to find himself a bargain. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What was the thinking here in allowing a child murderer and a serial sex offender out into the public in plain clothes, you gave him cash, and a three-hour head start? Also, can we talk about the demographic of people at said shopping mall in 1973? I am most certain it was young girls and women. Eubanks was just unleashed in the middle of them all. I want to know who pitched this idea and who was the dumbass that went along with it. Honestly, not one of them thought to say, Hey, none of these men should be given that much freedom. And definitely not at a mall. Take them to the local 7-Eleven. Tell them to make it work. Right? I mean, really. These are deadly inmates, not senior citizens at an adult daycare. 
who, by the way, are never let out of their caretaker's sight. They had These prisoners had no supervision whatsoever. I bet none of the other men, who all did return to the designated meetup location, were facing life sentences without the possibility of ever getting out. Well, except this one. Lester Eubanks was allowed to walk away from that shopping mall and has evaded capture ever since. After this escape, authorities searched for answers and found that during the months leading up to his escape, visitation from some of his family members increased, and then they just stopped suddenly. And although many of his family were questioned, no proof was ever found that they were involved. Although they believed he was hiding out in Michigan with family, but he was never spotted there. This led authorities to believe someone helped him escape the mall that day by having a getaway already planned. Immediately, both the local and federal government took out warrants on Eubanks, hoping he would get picked up somewhere, anywhere. But there was no such luck, and the trail went cold. And no leads, no witnesses. The case was at a standstill until 1993, 20 years after Eubanks had escaped. An officer ran a random check of Eubanks' name and it brought up something unexpected. It brought up absolutely nothing. Absolute, there was not one single warrant out for Eubanks, not locally or federally. So even if he had been encountered again by police, no one would have even known who he was. How many times did he get away with being face-to-face with law enforcement? Why were the warrants for him taken down? And more so, who took them down? So a new warrant was issued by the U.S. Marshal's Office, and Eubanks was added to the FBI's most wanted list. September 10, 1994. The show America's Most Wanted featured Eubanks for the first time, and a tip comes in from a woman claiming she knew the man in L.A. back during the 70s. According to his witness, she knew the man, and he was living with a woman named Kay Banks who happened to be the widow of Eubanks' cousin, Daryl Banks. Kay and Lester had been writing to each other while Lester was in prison. Interesting fact, Daryl Banks was a popular Detroit singer back in the 1960s. And he he had a great song called Open the Door to Your Heart. You guys can check it out on YouTube. But police interviewed Miss Banks in October of 1994, After receiving the tip-off, she hesitantly admitted to helping Eubanks. But he was no longer living in L.A. In fact, he had recently fled. Kay had been living with Lester, but he had become possessive, and it made her uneasy, so she lied to him and said she was contacted by the police, that they were asking questions about him. And as planned, the frightened Lester immediately packed up and left and cut all ties with Kay which is what she wanted. She wanted a way to get rid of Lester without getting him in trouble. Despite many close calls over the years, Lester Eubanks has been able to be one step ahead of the police. Is he hiding in plain sight? In 2018, Eubanks was added to the U.S. Marshals' 15 most wanted list and were offering a reward of $25,000. Just recently, the reboot of a show called Unsolved Mysteries, I'm sure you all are very familiar, 
uh, on Netflix. It featured Eubanks in hopes of finding him. Eubanks would be 77 as of October 2020. He is a black male who stands at 5'11 and weighs about 175 pounds, at least last time he was spotted. He has black hair and brown eyes and a large scar or a burn on his upper right arm. He has been on the run for 47 years and has been allowed to live a life after robbing Mary Ellen of hers. He needs to be brought to justice, and Mary Ellen's family deserves to see that happen. So, let's dive into some speculation, shall we, before we get into the, uh, the concrete theory that is Lauren's synopsis. Let's do a little speculation here. So, first off, what makes this case possible? What makes a man be able to escape from death row or, you know, I guess just a high-security prison doing life um, and never be found again? Well, number one, the time period. You have to understand the time period. We're talking late 60s here, um, late 60s, early 70s. Just the forensics, the uh, technology was just not there. There weren't cameras everywhere like there are now. Uh, there, people didn't have the ability to take a snapshot of them at at the grocery store, at Walmart, or whatever it is. So uh, we're at a huge disadvantage there, right? Also, it seemed that prisons were a little more laid back then. Okay, this could have been uh, maybe he was placed in a private prison. You know, maybe he was placed in a private prison where they're a little more lackadaisical because private prisons exist. Let's be honest, they don't, they don't exist for reform, they exist for money, obviously. Private prisons are one of the worst things in our criminal system, and I, I believe that honestly, for that sole purpose. They're not there to, to mentor to, um, or rehabilitate these prisoners. They're there to make money, and they make a lot of money housing these prisoners and protecting society from them. On the other hand... These prisoners do spend a lot of time with guards, and we've seen it in the past. Some prisoners get more luxuries just because they're they're fun to talk to, or they have a silver tongue, like Lester Eubanks. That is one thing about him. People said he always knew what to say. He was a smooth talker. He could talk his way out of anything. So, and then, of course, the uh, family contact leading up to the Christmas shopping, that seems to be the most important piece to this puzzle, because there is no way... Lester Eubanks could have escaped from this mall with these guards there on hand by himself. I just don't believe that it's possible. I don't think he can just walk out of there and, well, you know what he could have done, though? He could have very well took the money. We don't know how much money he was given, for one. I don't know if he worked for this money in the prison, if this was his money, or if this was an allotted allowance. Um, Most articles that I read, most stories that I read tended to make me believe that it was an allotted allowance for these men. So not only were they given the freedom, they were given money to spend on Christmas things for their family. Um, but who's to say, because he's dressed in regular clothes, who's to say he didn't just walk through that mall, go out one of the many entrances that malls have? We all know that. Many, in, a lot of stores have their own outside entrances. There's multiple main entrances to the mall. There's, there's emergency exits. There's, there's exits at the bathrooms, typically. There's so many ways out of this mall, I'm guessing, um, that he could have just wandered out of the mall, went onto the street, and called a cab. Right? He very well could have done this himself. Depending on how, uh, the allotted allowance, 
he could have very easily took a cab to a family member's house and then went from there. Or he could have just had a family member parked outside. He ran, walked right through the mall, up to the parking garage or to the parking garage or whatever, or parking lot, and got in the car with his family member and left. And that's it. That's all you need. They got, a, they got somebody who makes him a fake ID. Now he has an ID. And uh, there you go. You move on with your life. I mean, it is the 60s after all. Good luck finding him. Right? It's not like you're going to... You're going to uh, get some cell phone pings or or uh, some credit card transactions or something like that. There's just, I mean, you let this gentleman out with street clothes and cash and a silver tongue. And he made the best of it. He absolutely made the best of it. And a little girl's family, um, still to this day, is, I, who knows? I mean, they could very well... It could very well be tortured by this, never knowing if he's going to come back. 77 years old today, that's that's not terrible. 77 years old is... Many people live to be 77 nowadays. With with advances in modern medical technology and whatnot, I tend to think that Lester Eubanks is out there. And until a family member or a close friend or maybe an ex-lover or something speaks up, I don't think we're going to know anything else about Lester Eubanks. So, with that conclusion, guys, let's check in with Lauren this week, and uh, let's see what Lauren thinks about old Mr. Mr. Silvertongue Eubanks here in this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's strange and unexplained. The escape and disappearance of known rapist and child killer Lester Eubanks, who in 1965 was out on bond for another rape charge when he raped and killed 15-year-old Mary Allen Diener in Mansfield, Ohio. And the manner in which he killed Mary Allen is despicable and sickening. The fact that he shot her two times, left her to die, and later came back to hear her still writhing in pain and finish her off with a brick that he found paints a picture of an absolute monster, and that's what Lester Eubanks is. And that's why in 1966, after he got captured, thankfully, to, you know, thanks to some good police work, he was captured and he was convicted and given the death penalty. And this, the nature of that crime fits the death penalty. However, from 66 to 72, he was on death row, you know, set to be killed, uh, I believe, by the electric chair. When in 1972, the death penalty was deemed un- unconstitutional. And there was a four year period from 72 to 76 where no death penalties were carried out. His death penalty sentence then got downgraded to a life imprisonment. And from there, it seemed like he just kept getting more and more liberties by putting on this phony personality and being likable to the guards. And that, coupled with the fact that he was a very talented painter, just earned him more and more liberties from behind bars. And eventually, 
the prison screwed up big time and allowed this guy to go shopping at the mall for Christmas uh, unsupervised, let him wander around the mall without a guard with him, and of course he escapes. And ever since then, he's never been seen again. There's been some, you know, breadcrumbs that he's left in the wake of that. You know, they've been able to track down some places where he's stayed since then in 72. Um, you know, there was a woman who was his brother's widow, um, and he stayed with her for a while, and she was very savvy in telling him that the police had called looking for him in order to get rid of him because he was basically bullying her and scaring her. That's the kind of guy Lester is. And so, you know, he stayed with her for a while and then he moved on and was down apparently in Alabama as, uh, working as a painter and also uh, as a janitor at a youth center. That's the last, I believe, the last trail that the police were able to pick up on, but he was already a few months gone from there. So they just a little behind, but I do believe the police are going to catch Lester. And thanks to him being on America's Most Wanted, being on Unsolved Mysteries, um, he's one of the most wanted criminals in this country right now for good reason, because he is a repeat offender. He is a serial rapist. He is a killer, a known killer, killed a 15-year-old girl, took her life from her, and he's never shown remorse. You know, I feel really bad for Mary, Ann, uh, Mary Allen's family because he never even apologized or showed any remorse for what he had done. Not that that fixes anything, but it, it would, like Myrtle, for instance, who was interviewed in Unsolved Mysteries and told her story, that's Mary Allen's sister. She, I think it would have given her at least a small level of closure if he had admitted, you know, that what he had done was wrong and that, you know, and apologized for it. Um, it would have given her at least some peace, but he never even did that. And now he escapes prison due to a, a real bad decision on the part of the justice system. And uh, he's out there in the streets now. You know, he's an old man at this point. But all we can hope is that much like the Golden State Killer, he has to continue to look over his shoulder and he never gets real peace or freedom. That's one thing you can hope. And another is that, you know, at some point, he's going to hear a knock at the door, just like Joseph D'Angelo did, the Golden State Killer. That, I think, is how this ends for him. I think he's going to get caught. I think that the U.S. Marshals are hot on his heels and one little slip up, and he's going to be going back to prison. And I hope that all these years for him were, you know, not a feeling of real freedom that he's always, like I said, had to look over his shoulder and never been comfortable. So, and let's hope that he's not committed any more of these crimes over these years that he's been free, you know, due to the, the prison letting him basically get, get away. <clears throat> he goes. It's amazing that he went from death penalty, being on death row, to Christmas shopping at the mall with the prison's permission. That just blows my mind, especially when you consider it's a sexual offender, which we know the that's the most likely criminal to repeat is a sexual predator, predator like him. So that's my thoughts. Hopefully we hear news soon of Lester Eubanks being caught thanks to Unsolved Mysteries and um, different uh, media outlets covering this case and, and letting people know and putting the picture out there. They've even done an age progression picture of his face. Hopefully these things help to get him caught because it's about time he goes back to prison. That's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right. Excellent synopsis as always, Lauren. 
Yes, thanks for that added information about a few other places that he was spotted, one of them being a janitor where children are around, right? A janitor at a school or a daycare or something of that sort. Um, I've, I've heard both. But either way, just being allowed to work around children, like, where, where's the background check on these guys, Right? I mean, I I'm, I realize it could have been 70s, 80s, but still, like, what are we, we just going by word of mouth? We just let anybody in the schools around our kids? Apparently at the time, yeah. Unless he had some sort of stolen identity, which I, I feel like that's the only way he would have been able to make it for this long. He has to have some form of identification to make it here in the U.S., some sort of fake ID um, of some sort, right? So... That's the case of Lester Eubanks. Guys, hopefully somebody will come forward one day and hopefully by putting this case out there um, over and over again, it will, um, I don't know, hopefully it'll spark somebody's interest. Maybe someone knows something and they think, well, it's been long enough. At least this family can have closure, right? At least someone, maybe someone knows that Lester's dead. Even that would be some sort of closure to the family. But in the process of studying Mr. Eubanks, I thought, man, this is crazy. How many people have escaped from such a high-security prison and never been seen again, especially when they were in the prison in the first place for such a high-profile crime? So, it didn't take much searching, um, but on NBCNews.com, I found an article entitled, Seven Prison Escapees Who Were Never Found. Now, most of these did take place 60s, 70s, whatnot, but still quite interesting to say the least. So here's one in 1962. John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris escaped from Alcatraz. Okay? So the article reads like this. Escaping Alcatraz, a prison secured by the waters of the San Francisco Bay and known as The Rock, while it was operational, was seemingly impossible. But, at th- but three dozen men tried to break out. Some were caught, some were killed, and three were never seen again. In a plan that began six months before their getaway on June 12, 1962, John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris placed realistic-looking dummies in their beds, climbed through holes they had drilled in the back of their cells, and made their way through a court... Serious three guys did the old Shawshank Redemption whatever. Um, But they made their way through a corridor into the open air, where they had stashed a makeshift raft that they inflated with a musical instrument, according to the FBI. What musical instrument did they inflate a raft with? Uh, What, a clarinet? A flute? A kazoo? Maybe a kazoo. Maybe a kazoo. Uh, A harmonica? That'd be quite difficult. I don't understand how any of these help you more than just blowing in it with your mouth. Like, why does the air need to go through an instrument? Um, I don't know. That's odd. And also, when I think about instruments that are small enough and pointy enough to fit into a into a uh, an inflatable insert for some sort of raft or something, I feel like, why does a prisoner have that anyways? Like, I feel like I wouldn't even give a prisoner a clarinet. That just seems like a great weapon. I don't know. Maybe off here. But what happened next remains a mystery. Did they make it across the bay as planned, or did the wind and waves get the better of them? 
On the 50th anniversary of the notorious escape, two sisters of the Anglin brothers told the Daily Mail that they remained hopeful for five decades that their brothers and Morris had floated to safety. Quote, I've always believed they've made it, and I haven't changed my mind about that, said one of the sisters, Mary uh, or Marie Widener. So, like I said, that took place in 1962. Okay, so here's another one. In 1969, Jerry Bergevin from Camp Waterloo, Illinois. Bergevin was sentenced to about a decade in a Michigan prison for breaking into a drugstore in 1962. That's literally what this article says, about a decade. So, I don't know, eight, nine years. Um, He appealed for a transfer to the lower security camp Waterloo in Jackson in 1969, claiming he wanted to attend a training program there, according to the Associated Press. He disappeared shortly after. The Michigan Department of Corrections called off the search for Bergevin in 2013, when he would have been 80 years old. Bergevin's granddaughter, Angela Michaels, who had uh, been trying to track him down for years, told the Detroit Free Press at the time that news of his technical discharge was bittersweet. Quote, he's home free, I guess, end quote. Damn. So, not much on that guy. Just uh, said he wanted to attend a training program and dipped out. Well, there you go. I mean, what better to... See, his his escape isn't as impressive to me because he actually... Because um, he was just in prison for breaking and entering. Um, maybe theft, not sure. And then he got transferred to a lower security prison. So it doesn't seem as as daring as like the Alcatraz escape. Um, but nonetheless, a man who escaped from a prison and was never caught. So moving on. 1979, Joanne Chesimard. Chesimard? Chesimard. You know how good I am with names. Joanne Chesimard from Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in New Jersey. Joanne, who counts Asada Shakur among her aliases, was a member of the Black Liberation Army and was wanted for felonies including bank robbery when she was stopped by the New Jersey State Police in 1973. Chesimard and her accomplices fired on the troopers, killing Trooper Warren Forrester, and she was sentenced to life in prison. With the help of members of the Black Liberation Army who took two prison guards as hostages, she escaped New Jersey's Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in 1979, according to a New York Times article published at the time. Five years later, Chesimard fled to Cuba, where she was granted political asylum. She became the first woman to be added to the FBI's most wanted terrorist list when the Bureau added her in 2013. On the 40th anniversary of Forrester's death, the FBI and State of New Jersey are both offering $1 million in reward money for information leading to Chesimard's arrest. So, there you go. As far as we know, she's still out. Um, That's crazy that she was the first woman added to the FBI's most wanted terrorist list, and that didn't happen until 2013. I just don't believe that. Apparently, women are some really good terrorists, or they're just late to the game and get involved in terrorism, right? Just seems, seems late. 2013? But... Whatever. So, 1990, 
Glenn Stark Chambers from Polk Correctional Institution, Florida. Glenn Stark Chambers was sentenced to life in prison for the 1975 fatal beating of his girlfriend, Connie Weeks. Chambers escaped from Polk Correctional Institution in Florida by hiding in a truck that was leaving and fleeing that was leaving and fleeing the facility. Um, but he hid in the truck and the driver was uh, before the driver was aware he had a passenger according to Florida Department of Corrections. So he's hiding in the truck. He hopped in this truck that was leaving the facility, hid in some area where the driver had already checked. And so he was unaware that Glenn Chambers was in there. So, quote, putting Glenn Chambers behind bars again would help my family find closure, Weeks' sister, Pam Cooper, said in 2009 during a renewed campaign to find Chambers. But he still hasn't been located. So Weeks' sister, they're talking about Connie Weeks, which is his girlfriend that he killed in 1975. Um, So let's see. 1987 and 1991. I'm interested to see if any of these people escaped, uh, you know, post-year 2000. Very curious about that. So 87 and 91, Glenn Stewart Godwin from Folsom State Prison, California, and Puente Grande Prison, Mexico. So he escaped from two? Damn! Glenn Stewart Godwin was sentenced to a lengthy sentence in California's Folsom State Prison for a grisly murder in which he repeatedly stabbed his victim and then tried to destroy the body by blowing it up in a car according to LA Times. Godwin cut security bars in the yard of the prison and climbed through a storm drain to freedom in 1987, the Times reported. Later that year, Godwin was arrested in Mexico for drug trafficking and sentenced to prison in Guadalajara, according to the FBI. Godwin escaped from the Mexican prison in 1991, five months after allegedly murdering a fellow inmate, according to the FBI, which added him to its 10 most wanted list in 1996 and is offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. So if anybody knows where Glenn Stewart Godwin is, it would really pay up to speak out right now, okay? <laughs> and in 87 and 91, I mean, this gentleman, it's, it's a good chance he's still alive, still alive and kicking out there. So... So there you go. Mr. Eubanks isn't the only one to escape a high-security prison um, and never be found. Although there are, there are not many, it seems, um, that have escaped without a trace and never, you know, and never been heard of whatsoever, whether dead, live, recaptured, arrested, whatever the deal is. But Lester Eubanks, to me, though, just it's stuck out above the rest because of all of the seeming help that he received. With his name being pulled off um, America's Most Wanted, with, with the warrants for his arrest being pulled down too, way, way too early. And this man giving, giving, I don't know, just giving this man the freedom to act as a civilian when he's a repeat offender. Someone who, out on bail, decided to kill another young girl. I just, I just don't understand it. I really don't. I don't understand what... Maybe this man really did have a way with words. Maybe he had a way of talking to people and convincing them that he was innocent and he just didn't do these crimes. I, I really don't know. I really don't know. But the case of Lester Eubanks um, 
will always be a, a mystery, I assume. I just think if it's made it this long and it hasn't been solved, I, I don't think anyone will ever come out about Lester Eubanks. And it's coming a time where most people affiliated with the case are going to be gone. Um, I mean, aside from aside from the, the sister, you know, I don't know, Mary Ellen's sister, she's the only one, I think, that would probably still be harboring some hate and some discontentment towards uh, Mr. Eubanks and, and maybe the remaining members of that family as well. Um, but I feel like even they have to have moved on by now. Um, so unfortunately, I don't know if we'll ever see any type of justice in that Lester Eubanks case. But like Lauren said, you know, he has lived the last, what, 40 years of his life, um, or almost 50 years of his life now, if he was still alive, uh, looking over his shoulder. And that's a hard way to live. You never know at any given time where you have to leave everything that you've built. And that in itself is somewhat of a punishment. Never truly being able to relax. Never truly being able to let your guard down. At least that's how we feel, right? That's how I feel as a normal, functioning, uh, non-sociopathic person. But on the other hand, maybe Lester is uh, sleeping like a baby. Who knows? Maybe he feels untouchable. I don't know. But guys, there is a podcast out that is mainly it's just about Lester Eubanks. And I highly recommend you guys check it out. It's called Have You Seen This Man? Podcast called Have You Seen This Man? And it goes into detail about the Lester Eubanks case. If you just got to know more, maybe you want to solve this crime tonight, you know, before you go to bed. That's not too big of a task. You can do it. Check out that podcast. Have you seen this man? The podcast is done by ABC News, and there is about eight episodes, I believe. I'm sorry, six episodes, but there is a trailer at the beginning and then also a uh, recent bonus episode that's been released November uh, November 19th of this year, and it's called uh, Sweet Home Alabama. So I'm guessing that episode is about the sighting of Lester in Alabama. So definitely worth checking out, guys, if you're interested in this case and want to stay up to date. It seems that this this podcast done by ABC is, is on it. They've got all their bases covered, and they're even up to date as far as November 19th of 2020. So what more could you ask for, right? If, you're, if you want to join the search for Lester Eubanks, great place to start. All right, guys. So that's the show. That's the show on Lester Eubanks. Um, hopefully you guys who... Don't like these unsolved crimes with the criminals still in the loose. Hopefully, this isn't too um, this isn't too disturbing for you. But uh, you know, think about it this way: Lester Banks is an old man by now. Lester Eubanks, right? He's an old man. If he tries to get you now, just knock his old ass out, right? You can handle it. <laughs> but guys, I want to thank everyone who supports the show, guys, especially if you're on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/sandupodcast. Um, if you guys can sign up for just three bucks a month, you get early access to these episodes. They're released every Thursday um, instead of Monday, so you don't have to wait so long. And then also you get access to other shows that I do on there, uh, like Strange Shorts and The Palette Cleanser. So there's a lot going on on the Strange and Unexplained Patreon page if you guys want to check that out. 
Also, any announcements that I have, Patreon always finds out about them first. Um, guys, we have merch available. Go to truecrimeguys.threadless.com and you will see a strange and unexplained logo there. You can click that logo and you can get that logo on anything you want, whether it be sweatshirts, hoodies, t-shirts, coffee mugs, uh, face masks even for COVID. Who knows how long this is going to last, right? I mean, pretty soon we're all going to have like a mask collection. It's going to be like, like, do you have a mask rack in your house? You know, that's what it's going to be. It's like a hat rack, but for masks, right? That's, that's basically what I have. I have a family of five. So we're always like, you got your mask? Yeah, you got yours? Oh, here, I have an extra one. You know, I mean, at this point, we all have multiple masks, which is so weird, but we've just adapted it into our society. But anyways, you can get a strange and unexplained mask um, for a relatively fair price, and it's well-made, and you get to support your favorite podcast, Strange and Unexplained, of course, right? I mean, come on, people, get real. But there's tons of content on there. And the reason it's on uh, truecrimeguys.threadless.com, if you guys are unaware, um, if you just haven't read the logo, I guess, uh, but Strange and Unexplained is a True Crime Guys production. So True Crime Guys productions, we have two podcasts, two uh, free podcasts underneath our umbrella, True Crime Guys, which has um, been going strong since... Uh, I'd say December of 2016. So that's a podcast that I do uh, with myself and my friend Lorne, who you heard in the Lorne synopsis. It's more of a discussion podcast. It's a little more laid back. And we don't typically touch any unsolved um, or just, you know, unsolved or missing persons cases where most of our cases are our closed book. All right. So you can leave that podcast fulfilled and knowing the whole story. It's kind of how we like to do it on True Crime Guys. Um, but of course, here on Sandu, we dive into the mysterious. We dive into the unknown because, you know, somebody's got to do it, right? So I also want to thank uh, some people who have left some reviews on the podcast. I would like to thank uh, Peanutty Girl in the UK. She says, the synopsis, after an endorsement by Esther... Oh, if you guys don't know about Esther, Esther does Once Upon a Crime, an amazing true crime podcast. Um, and also, she does a sideshow called Let's Talk About Crime. Okay? So, let's talk about true crime, rather. Um, and that is where Esther gave a shout for the show. So, it says, after an endorsement by Esther at Let's Talk About True Crime, I thought I'd give this podcast a listen. I'm so pleased I did. It isn't like any other true crime podcast, and the stories are interesting. I gotta say, though, my favorite part of each episode is it's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. Yeah, I know. It just hit me all of a sudden. Um, I probably, I just ruined my whole show. I can never live up to that beat and that uh, that melody and that catchy phrase. So, no matter what I put out on this show, it'll never be as good as Lauren's synopsis song, but hey, whatever. Right? Got At least I'm doing something good on this show. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, if you can, go leave me a review. I appreciate it very much. On iTunes, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher, or Podcast Attic, if you're on Android, um, or uh, wherever. Anyways, the reviews are great, guys. I love when you guys leave reviews. I love reading them. I like giving you guys shout-outs for reviews. So that's... That's pretty much what they're good for. It's also good for other people to, to check them out and see what the show's about in a quick snapshot, right? So, but the best way to share this, the, support the show, guys, is just to share it. 
Share it with your friends. Tell your friends, tell your family members. Uh, you know, when you go riding in a car with somebody, maybe put this on instead of music. Right? That'll be cool. That'll freak them out a little bit. Or maybe they'll like it. Who knows? Right? I got this weird theory that like everyone likes true crime. It's just some people don't like to admit it. Because, you know, there's a, there's a reason that phrase exists. It was like a train wreck. I couldn't look away. I think people like to know the worst things that could happen because it makes them feel a little bit better when they're not happening to them. It makes them, uh, it makes the fact that they left their coffee on top of their car and drove off uh, not that big a deal, right? It makes the fact that you uh, maybe didn't get that promotion you wanted not such a big deal, right? You're still alive. A crime didn't happen to you. I don't know. That's just how I look at it. It's all about perspective, people. But thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. I'm rambling again. Um, on social media, at S&U Podcast. You guys can hit me up on there if you have any case suggestions or whatever. Email me at sandupodcast at gmail.com as well if you have a case suggestion or any questions about the show whatsoever. All right, guys. All right, that's it. I'm done. I'm done rambling. Guys, I'll see you next week for another strange and unexplained case. And remember, be strange. Just don't be a stranger. That's weird.